Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. This evening, we've got Joe. Good evening. And Dan. Hello. And I'm Thanks for being with us. We surround ourselves with tracking technologies and tonight we chat with researcher Sunil Jathani to find out how to make this data work for us and what areas to watch out for. He's just released a book and we're very interested to hear all about it. Also on the show this evening, we take time to review the recent cybercrime allegations levelled at China from dozens of nations and what remedies might be available with criminology researcher Dr Lennon Chang. Hey you two, how are you going this week? You coping okay with the extra lockdown news? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, surprisingly, yeah. The fact that we get to leave the house and sit behind these perspex screens and look at each other in person <laughs> is like an absolute highlight. That yeah. is a highlight, it a is. social highlight for the week. Definitely. Um, like spe- I, speaking yeah. to someone about things that aren't work is great. Yes. Although I think, you know, recognizing how fortunate we are to all have those sort of white collar jobs behind screens mm. where we have yeah. the luxury of working from home in these times is also a bit of a comfort. This is and, true. and by perspex screens, I'm not meaning digital screens. We are literally all facing each other here yeah. with like cough shields. It's very novel. It's it, and the best part of it is that my reflection of me is lining up with your face at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've got this like weird zoom hybrid. Anyway. Exactly. I've got this weird hybrid of what our child would look like. Oh, just a matter of time before we have the perfect little hologram representation of you two. <laughs> so what's There's happening? an app for that. <laughs> I'm sure. I can oh, yeah. only dream. Dan, what's been happening in the news this week? Well, look, can you believe it's been five years since hashtag census fail? Yes. Um, the the uh, national census was last night, and uh, for those who can remember five years ago, uh, it went digital for the first time five years ago, and it was, I think, a debacle would probably be a generous description of it. Uh, things crashed. There was you know, allegations of hacking. People were blaming everyone else for things that went wrong. And then, so they've had five years to go away, look at what went wrong and try and fix it. Now, in terms, there's been a lot of discussion around the questions that were asked and, you know, who's being included and who isn't being included. So we're not going to go into the detail of that here. But I would like to know, um, firstly, you guys, I'm assuming, filled out the census form at some point in the last week. Correct. Uh, um, I filled it in last night, yeah. Yeah, so great great thing to do on a Tuesday night. I personally found it to be a really easy experience. Nothing crashed. I was very happy with how it went. What did you guys think? Uh you know, no no problem with fill, filling it out. Um, I know that a lot of people who care about privacy requested a physical form mm-hmm. to do, and so I was quite interested in comparing the um, experience of online versus the form, whereas online would have, you know, oh, if you tick this, this other stuff might become visible, whereas in the physical form, of course, everything's sort of in front of you, which um, does create some interesting interplays. Joe, how did you find it? Yeah, it was very a very quick form to fill in for me. I spent far longer ranting in the feedback box at the end than I did actually filling it out. Yeah. yeah. So even though it's been very well covered, I think we should still, on this show in particular, talk about the issues that people had with the, the census this year. Joe, do you want to, do you want to just outline a couple of the issues? Um, my, my main uh, feedback for them was that um, I was forced to answer female. Um, if I had answered non-binary, I would have been randomly assigned male or female. So, <laughs> yay. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's a really weird thing too for, you know, a discussion of how they were going to take the data and analyse it if you filled in an extra box differently in the future, how that even got out there, how that ran away from them. Yeah. Um, Something that people who aren't data nerds like we are might not be aware of is that the ABS released some quite decent guidelines for collecting information on sex, gender and sexual orientation last year. And then, um, as a few people on Twitter have observed, followed absolutely none of their own advice mm. for this census. And so I think when, we, when we're looking at the um, considered criticism of where the options in this census let people down and didn't make people feel represented, I think perhaps those accusations aren't to be levelled at the ABS, but in you know where they're facing some sort of blockers. Um, and we've heard a, a lot of... Uh, Shade being thrown at the door of uh, Michael Sakai, MP, who uh, was overseeing this from the ministerial oversight sort of level. Yeah. Yeah, look, it wouldn't surprise me if the Liberals had uh, a hand in deciding that those questions mm-hmm. shouldn't or weren't valid to be asked. Well, um, if, you, if yeah. you're not counting um, those of us in the LGBTQIA plus community, then you don't have any stats we're obligated to provide yeah. services yeah. And I know, for us. I know from doing a fair bit of work with uh, Midsummer before and running surveys there, trying to get more information to help inform some public health and some other community responses there, that um, there is a real dearth of information in the mm. area and there's quite a few organisations trying to fill that gap with their own surveys. Good on them for trying that. Um, if you care a lot about this and you want to know a bit more about uh, this issue, there's a good piece up on theconversation.com um, about LGBTIQ people are being ignored in the census again. Not only is this discriminatory, it's bad public policy. If you Google around that sort of area, you should land You'll at the right it. place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something else that has popped up for me this week is thinking about how the digital divide um, might exacerbate inequitable access to COVID-19 vaccinations. I found this uh, piece of research on the World Economic Forum website and they've, they've done some looking into globally uh, correlations between lack of access to information and then lack of awareness that vaccinations have become available in certain communities and different countries around the world and they're starting to map where those discrepancies are and who's starting to miss out. And they've found a really high correlation between just basic lack of internet access and much... Um, worse outcomes in terms of getting vaccinations quickly, all sorts of vaccinations. Uh, and I thought, gee, that's that's kind of interesting globally. I wonder what the situation's like here. I uh, saw a story on the um, 5.30 news this evening on ABC. Um, Co-health uh, here in Victoria, um, now that we're during a, um, a lockdown, it means that homeless people are staying in allocated hotel rooms, so they're they're able to vaccinate people by um, setting up pop up clinics um, for these homeless communities, and then working out ways to follow up with them so that they can get their second shot. Which I, I think is a really good piece of news. Yeah, it's quite promising to hear that you know our government are thinking about how to access you know people with less access to things generally. Mm. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of good. We'd love to hear more about that. So I hope to find out more about what's actually happening in Victoria. Uh, Joe, So Twitter have had uh, their first ever algorithmic bug bounty where they're paying people to um, find out 
things that their algorithm is doing that isn't particularly good or could be considered buggy. They have awarded $3,500 to Bogdan Kulinich, a graduate student in Switzerland, who found out that Twitter's image cropping algorithm prefers younger, slimmer faces with lighter skin. So... (laughs) I mean, it's good that Twitter are funding their own um, algorithms, uh, investigations into their algorithms' biases. But mm. um, holy moly! Yeah, yeah. How how do how do those kind of? I mean, we've got plenty of experts who we've spoken to in the past about the kind of biases that get built well, into this stuff. He um, he actually worked out. Um, he artificially generated faces with very varying features and then ran them through Twitter's cropping algorithm to see which the software focused on. Oh. So I, he must have been afforded some different access to the, the system on a research level. But yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's good so, that they're actually doing something about it. Yeah, and what's important for people who don't work in this space to know is that no one goes out there and writes a program in this case to bias no. towards younger yeah. or slimmer no. or paler faces. This is happening because they're like, hey, go out there. And they, they've written a program that says learn what people respond to most and click on most and or, you know, it's, or, it's built other which, sorts of behaviours uh, in. Or what, what is the most um, examples of a certain thing that you get? So yeah. sometimes it'll bias towards um, yeah. volume. Could be anything like yeah. this. And the, the, I guess the problem is that that is not transparent to us. We call yeah. these black box algorithms. And so the outcome of, of the decisions that that algorithm makes are, are not transparent. And this is why they need to be looked at. So, yeah, it is, it's great that they're looking at it. It's great that they've come clean and said, okay, we've recognised this is a problem. You know, let's, the first thing to do is recognise the, you have a it's problem. It's the least Absolutely. they can do. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, in slightly, well, in much, much more encouraging news, uh, US President Biden has set a goal for 50% of all new cars on the road to be electric vehicles by 2030. So US is on um, a path that is really showing the way for EVs at the moment and which Australia can envy. Mm-hmm. He has also requested a proposed, sorry, $174 billion for electric vehicles and charging stations, including $100 billion worth of consumer rebates. Those are all in US dollars, this being a US article. Um, and what's even better is that he's got corporate support. So the top three companies in the US by market share with, um, you know, car selling uh, businesses – um, a General Motors, Toyota and Ford and all three have made announcements around electric vehicles in response to this change. So you can see it's been a very coordinated sort of uh, policy effort. Mm. Yeah. This is what happens when, you know, people think about how to do it right and work together to actually achieve it. And I hope at it some point done. it can be done. Um, and, you know, at some point an Australian government might think it's worth doing. I don't have much hope that it will be this Australian government. But uh, there, there's some really uh, encouraging stuff coming out of Victoria. So um, from July, so last month, uh, low emission vehicles are subjected to a road user tax, which will see... Um, Electric drive, uh, talk. EV drivers and hybrid drivers charge 2.5. Oh, sorry, EV drivers are being charged 2.5 cents for every kilometre they drive, and hybrid drivers will be charged two cents per kilometre. Um, now, to kind of make this up, the government is also offering twenty thousand dollars, uh, twenty thousand subsidies of up to three thousand uh, dollars for drivers of these vehicles. There are a few caveats. It does need to be a new EV and cost less than sixty eight thousand seven hundred and forty dollars. Uh, and if you've been in the market, there aren't that many cars out there. Electric cars out there that are 
that. Starting to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people are starting to form their own little coalitions to import like secondhand mm. cars and what have you, which wouldn't be eligible for this sort of scheme. Yeah. But we're seeing green shoots. Absolutely. And um, so the rebates are going to be offered in stints and the first 4,000 are now available and you can head to the Victorian government's uh, solar.vic.gov.au uh, website to find out more about that. A, a, a bit of a, for those who don't kind of, know why that this is the case. The reason that they are charging uh, people per kilometre is because most of the road, um, I suppose, maintenance is paid for out of fuel excise tax. And if you aren't paying, buying fuel, you're not paying fuel excise. So it's it's just a way of being able to... Shift to the future. Shift, shift to the future and yeah. make sure that, you know, the, the, the roads that you drive on in your electric car will be drivable. Excellent. Triple R. Sunil Jathani is a researcher and lecturer in digital and social media and critical data studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. He recently released a book, The Politics and Possibilities of Self-Tracking Technology, Data, Bodies and Design. And he joins us to discuss it now. Welcome to the show, Sunil. Oh, hi, thanks for having me. So good to have you back. It's been a while and we've uh, lost you to interstate. What a shame. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It is, it is T-shirt weather up here, so, you know. Oh, I'm, uh, oh love it. Do it. So That's not cool. Thought <laughs> <laughs> so I'd just throw it in there, no. <laughs> nice to know that you haven't lost any of your familiarity with the team. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Excellent, excellent. Look, um, your book just seems completely fascinating to us. I've had a bit of a flick, but I have not read the whole thing yet uh, and would love to get my hands on it soon. But you've mapped out some of the origins of self-tracking technologies in the, you know, while you've been doing your research for this book. So I'd love to start there. How far back does self-tracking technology actually go? Um, I mean, I looked at a whole bunch of different examples of this and you can see different... Um, different wearable and different self-tracking systems at all different points throughout history. And I sort of start my my analysis of these technologies in the 1960s, and not so much with the the idea of self-tracking, but the relationship between self the relationship between te- technology and self-knowledge. Um, and I sort of situate that in some of the 1960s countercultural movement, and one of the the sort of interesting findings in that is that you see the same people crop up over and over and over again in the history of groups like the quantified self um, and some of the more contemporary applications of of self-tracking technology for the, you know, sort of large cohort studies of um, chronic health and illness. And you sort of see the same biographies pop up from, you know, right from the whole Earth catalogue in the 1960s through to, to Wired magazine, um, you know, the TED, the TED Talks, um, and then through to some of the startups that um, have sort of, you know, proliferated around the, the wearable sensor-enabled technology scene. Um, so I sort of tried to situate self-tracking as, a, as an extension of a, an ideology that um, looks at the ways that technology can be used to, to empower people and, and help people get to know themselves better um, and live um, in ways that help them make, you know, better, better more informed decisions about, about their lives. Would you like to um, also give us a bit of a, an explanation of the term qual- uh, quantified self? 
Yeah, so the, the quantify itself has a sort of two two meanings. Um, and the first is the social community group that sprung up around the sort of early to early to early to mid two thousands and two thousands and tens. Um around the, the meetup platform where people would sort of come together and use different types of sensor-enabled technology and data-driven technology to um, perform experiments on themselves. And the quantified self-meetups were centred around three questions. Um, what did you do? How did you do it? And what did you learn? And we saw this, you know, huge proliferation of, of groups all over the world um, that would sort of organise loosely around that. And that was the what, what I call the, the social movement, the quantified self. And then as technologies like the Fitbit and the Apple Watch and the kind of wearable fitness tracking technologies sort of came onto the, the scene and become, you know, more commonplace, the quantified self then becomes a, a way to name um, the... The, the the self tracker or the, the the body or the person that is like you know rendered in 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 data. So there's these two two meanings. One is the you know the the, the sort of social group, and then a, a term that stands in for the the figure of you know the the datafied body. So Sunil, when people have started thinking about these self tracking technologies really early on. Were they always running quite a different course to other sorts of tracking technologies that weren't for the self, like you know surveilling sort of technologies or things on you know pets or what have you? Yeah, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, in that um, I talk about electronic monitoring, you know, like house arrest, and I sort of argue that um, those types of surveillance technologies that exist outside the frame of, of health and wellness and, and living a, a good, healthy, productive, informed life are really important antecedents and we should look at them as a way to predict potentially the future directions of this type of technology. And in the book I talk about two features of electronic um, house arrest bracelets that could find their way into contemporary consumer devices and that's tamper-proofing um, and using um, sensors to monitor for the presence of alcohol or drugs on the on the skin, and those are, are features of electronic monitoring technology that have existed for for decades now um, that we could potentially see incorporated into other consumer devices that get that get designed for other applications. And I sort of argue in the book that electronic monitoring is a really interesting story. And it helps us sort of understand the diversions and um, and detours that, that that wearable sensor technology can take, um, and use that to, to sort of offset some of the um, sort of positive and and um, sort of overly enthusiastic discourses around you know the contemporary technologies that we we see today. When we when we get our data from these tools, are we generally good at interpreting our own data? Um, I think we are, and I think that um, from from the point of view of the individual, there's a lot of a lot of value. I think where it gets tricky is when third parties start to interpret that data, and um, when self tracking is used by by institutions. So in the book, I talk about workplaces 
and how workplaces um, are really enthusiastic about this type of technology. And in the book, I talk about a, a device called a sociometric badge, which looks a bit like the workplace lanyards that you that you wear, except it's got a camera, a microphone, an accelerometer, and a whole bunch of other sensors in it. And it's used to measure interpersonal interaction in in a sort of workplace team dynamic. So you would use this um, to measure how people are performing in meetings, for example, or if you've got like a, a team of people going out to pitch to a client, you could use these devices to sort of measure the, the overall, you know, the, the vibe of that team. And what's really interesting is that if you looked at that, that data from the perspective of an individual, you'd probably be able to make loads of decisions and, 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 and gain loads of insights about your own performance. But if you look at that from the context of a third party, there's a load of, of problems and it strips away some of the nuance and some of the context um, that people are using these technologies in. So the sensors, for example, don't necessarily line up um, to one another in terms of time. And some independent studies showed that there was a 30-second difference between the timestamps for the same event between different wearers of, of, of these, these badges that were, were in a, you know, a, a sort of shared social situation. Um, and then the synchronicity between the badges and, say, clock time is you know, potentially out. And then what that does is it gives a third party who's looking at that data a kind of skewed concept of the, the reality of that situation. And I think that from the perspective of individuals looking at this stuff, um, the risks are that there's less risk. And when third parties start to look at the data or you start to look at the data at scale or in aggregate or, you know, with sort of large, large volumes, um, that can become a problem. And then there's also the the difference between the raw data that comes off the sensors and the derived metrics that that are generated out of the technology when you know certain software and algorithms are, are used to perform operations on the the raw sensor data. So there's like two kind of classes of of data that comes off it and makes it really complex. So how do we how do we balance that sort of um, that sort of thing? It sounds like things on an individual level are really valuable in terms of information. But if if there's no balance of having other people's data to compare yourself against, what's the balance there? Like how, who who should be having access to this information and, and how do we make it useful on an individual level right, without, you know, organisations getting involved? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a super complex, like, question and one that I, I really wish... Um, I could have dealt with in a little bit more detail in the in the book. You know, the focus on the on the individual. But the way the way I answer that question in the book um, is that we don't balance. Mm. And what we do is we sort of take the conflicted nature of these technologies, the fact that they produce um, both empowering and disempowering effects in the same individual at the same time. Um, we sort of take that as as a starting point, and the, the way that we think about the design, the, the final section of the book um, is all sort of geared towards towards design. How do we then think about that sort of conflicted nature of the, the technology? 
um, as something that we design for, that we don't try to, like, bracket away and rationalise um, those effects and that we sort of understand from, from the basis, uh, from, you know, the, the starting point, that there's these sort of two, two-way effects um, with the technology and then starting to think about how that conception of the technology and the conception of the, the human, the, the user, assimilates to some of the standard practices that we, we see used um, when we design new technology. So, like, how does um, that conception of the user fit within, you know, human-centred design or user experience or, um, you know, sort of agile production where you're rapidly iterating things and so on? Talking about the, the way that the technology is responding to human behaviour, how are human behaviours responding to people knowing more about the data, or more information of what they're doing like in terms of the meta information on our behaviour? Like, are people changing the way they behave? Yeah, and I think the, the, one of the really fascinating things about doing the research for this book was just understanding all the idiosyncratic practices that people develop around the technology. Um, and that ranges from, you know, people thinking about the 10,000 steps and then um, adjusting their behaviour just so they, they meet um, a certain, you know, step, step count per day, um, right through to, you know, organising their lives in ways where um, they're avoiding situations where they might create bad data. And I think that that, that sort of adjustment of our... Of, of our behaviour is a form of alignment. You know, we align the, the way we think and, and the way we act, the way we apprehend the world to the logic of a technology that's been designed to look at us from the perspective of what can be measured and how it can be measured. Is, do, do you think the gamification has kind of changed that even further? Or is, it, is, it, is it more that people are kind of competing against themselves? Um, absolutely, I think gamification changes changes that, and gamification becomes sort of hard coded into the the logic of the device. Um, and in the book, I talk about a, a a device called Prana, which you use for posture correction, and um, it's designed for people who um, are perhaps working at you know at stationary desks for a long time, and it's designed to correct your posture, and it uses like it just attaches to the to the, the body um, at the belt loop. Is, and it, is it a spike? All... <laughs> I'm like, is it an electric shock? <laughs> spike um, is it's, great. Funny, it, it, it's funny, when I was researching um, posture correction technologies, the question I had to ask myself, like almost every, you know, every time I'd come across something is, is this a hoax? <laughs> um, I, th- I think you should have seen see Dan and Dan and Vanessa both set up straight after you. Yeah, I absolutely did. I absolutely did. Sorry, Neil, you were saying. Feeling so called um, out. We also yeah, checked and, who and, was wearing smart devices in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and gamification is, is is so much part of it. Like uh, you, you see that sort of built into into the logic of all these technologies, and um, you kind of see it like introduced at various points as well, you know, with different software releases. and um, But, yeah, like gamification is such a good incentive to keep people, like, on the device because, the, you know, the abandonment rate for, for, a, self tra- for a self-tracking device is pretty high. Um, I'm sure that, you know, we've all kind of used these, these things and after a little while you kind of get, get used to it or get sick of it and mm. 
Yeah, but, but I never felt sad it. for the device before now, now that you've called it the abandonment <laughs> it's rate. abandonment issues. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sunil, how has your research, if at all, changed how you relate to any of the self-tracking technologies around you? Um, I sort of decided really early on when I started looking at these, these technologies um, that I wouldn't go the auto-ethnographic route and I wouldn't, like... <laughs> You know, um, you know, strap a whole bunch of these things onto onto myself, and then write about write about how they made me feel. Um, I think I've always been like really skeptical, and I think the way that I that I always approach a, a device is the first thing I'll think is like, okay, so how do I game this device? How do I scam it? How do I produce like? You know, false data, <laughs> and I'm always thinking about the you know how do I how do I subvert the logic of, of, of this device? It's almost this like kind of resistant way of looking at them. And that's just, and I think that that's probably why I wrote a book about these technologies because I'm like really skeptical about, about what they can do. Um, but also thinking about um, there's potential for them to be improved mm. and the, that we shouldn't be complacent or lazy about thinking that the things that, the methods that we have to use sensors to measure different aspects of human physiology and behaviour are good enough. Um, and I think that there's probably, like, you know, huge developments that um, that could be made um, if we continue to look critically at these technologies and say, OK, well, you know, maybe an accelerometer is not the best way to measure that or, you know, maybe a, a volume um, sensor isn't the best way to measure that aspect of, of human behaviour. Um, what else is there? What other ways are there to do that? Well, we love the way that you're critically looking at these issues. Sunil, it's been um, a pleasure chatting with you. The book is The Politics and Possibilities of Self-Tracking Technology, Data, Bodies and Design. The author is Sunil Jathani. And uh, Sunil, is there a preferred outlet that people can look to purchase your book from? Um, through Emerald Publishing. Excellent. So, so that's... Emerald website. Yeah, emeraldinsight.com. Check it out. It's, um, it's quite incredible. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Triple R. It is time for our second interview for the evening. Dr. Lennon Chang is a senior lecturer in criminology at Monash University's School of Social Sciences and author of Cybercrime in the Greater China Region, Regulatory Responses and Crime Prevention Across the Taiwan Strait. In the wake of recent accusations by dozens of countries that China has been engaging in malicious cyber activities, Dr. Chang joins us to discuss the potential uh, remedies and ramifications of uh, this news. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lennon Chang. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to have you with us. We've got Dan, Joe, and I'm Vanessa here with you. Are we okay to call you Lennon? Yes, for sure. All right. Thanks so much. We're a pretty relaxed program here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, look, it was something quite extraordinary to read the news the other week and hear so many countries actually coming out and speaking about something as shady as cybercrime on um, a massive front from China because usually people are a lot more, well, let's say formally diplomatic about those mm-hmm. sort of things going on. Um, what do you think, you know, with your criminology perspective, 
was that a, a really um, unusual uh, step for countries to take? No, um, I think it's a normal process that uh, every country will take uh, to de- tackle with this kind of situation. But as we know, for um, hacking like this, especially um, when we when we have um, when we suspect that it's um, state sponsored. Um, charges or uh, criminal court cases won't, will never work. Mm. The other country will definitely not going to collaborate with you. Uh, in, uh, for example, the case that we see recently of uh, attacking the U.S. or Australia, it is, uh, they have made charges that um, say that those criminals are actually working for the Chinese government. So how could we be expecting them to... Uh, expecting the Chinese government to collaborate with the Australian government to arrest someone mm. which might be doing that based uh, because of their their job or or um, their responsibility. So, um, well, yeah, no, yep. keep going, please. So, so uh, that's the reason why I'm thinking that um, in that case um, we might be we might need to think about something more uh, innovative or no, noble way to tackle with this kind of problem. Uh, on top of um, the normal criminal um, procedure that we will, we will proceed. Yes. So, look, the criminal procedures would be very hard to follow. And normally, you know, one of the responses available to countries is uh, trade sanctions. Um, but mm-hmm. with China, you would think that that would be a very unattractive option. <laughs> well, if you have enough of... of Pressure to China, I think it will still work. <laughs> but what? Yeah. But what I'm more thinking is that well, instead of um, giving pressure to China, why don't we give him, uh, give pressure to the hackers themselves? Right. Yep. Okay. So it's an important step to then separate the hackers from the big entity of China. That that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, so, what yeah. sort of approaches uh, does your research in cybercrime and cybersecurity? Um, speak to as, as maybe being a bit more pragmatic? Well, what we're thinking is more like uh, uh, taking the restorative, restorative justice approach. So for, for the victims, um, they usually want to know why they become a victim, not really want to see the offenders or the criminals being um, put in jail. It, from coming from this perspective, we're sort of thinking maybe um, the U.S. government can use some ways, or, or not, not only the U.S. government, the, the victim, uh, the victimized um, countries might have some ways to to attract those hackers to come and collaborate with them instead of uh, just saying that we are going to arrest you and put you in jail. And this might go through different ways, such as well, giving pressure to. The family, we call it the more uh, reintegrative shaming, using shaming or or uh, uh, public shaming or online shaming to those um, of- offenders and try to give them pressures from, uh, using their families or relatives, especially if they have um, family members overseas. And the other one is more like we they should uh, we might consider say in. Uh, encourage the hackers to talk to the government, let the government know what um, what are the breaches of our abilities that the hackers are used and why. Uh, what are the purposes um, that the hackers are, are trying, uh, are, are doing this kind of hacking from? Uh, Lennon, if, if the hackers are doing this kind of stuff on behalf of the Chinese government, for example, and they're 
where like other governments are pushing back and trying to you know for example getting getting the sh- playing the shame card is that something that um there's evidence that the hackers would respond to or is it is it more a kind of a sense of they're doing it for their national pride and so in, a pushback from another another entity and shaming from another entity might not actually work well for this kind of uh, for this for the recent case we see uh, they are connected to the uh, to the ministry of uh, uh, national security in china based on the news so for this kind of um, uh, situation what i uh, i I'm agree with, i agree with you um that um, shaming public shaming might not work because they they are based in China, but if you if you think about um, uh, the the Chinese society as a more communal society, they 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 worry about how people how their family members, relatives, member uh, relative or their significant others see them. This kind of shaming might still work. It might not work in if they are in China, but it, it might work if they they start to travel overseas or they have kids or parents or family members overseas. They might be seen by their relatives as a criminal in in Australia or in in the U.S. Of course, they might not do it. They, they might they might just do it for their for their responsibility. Mm. So, who are some of the victims in these um, hacking cases, and, and what's happening to them? Sorry, say that again. Who are some of the victims in these hacking cases, and what's happening to them? Sorry, I didn't get your question. A little brutal here. Oh, sorry. Let's, just let's just asking yeah. who the victims are. Oh, um, for this public cases, so most of the victims are actually um, uh, the states, the governments, and um, they are also uh, companies or like recently universities become one uh, of the of, of the victims. They they try to steal informa- uh, the research information, especially uh, the uh, uh, infectious uh, disease um, data from. Uh, our our top universities in Australia, so it can be it can be it, it can be a quite wide range from um, the government to private sectors, even to uh, individuals. Is, uh, Lennon, is there any evidence of what they're doing with that data once it's been stolen, or do we not know that at that stage? Well, it's hard to for us to know, but. Um, what we usually say is, um, in old days, criminologists always say, where there's money, there's crime. Now, <laughs> the data is actually the gold mine. So if they have the whole data sum, they will be able to do any, any kind of data analysis to understand what is happening here. For example, recently we have the census data, and I, I know they were talking about census data earlier. But if this kind of data um, has been leaked, or even the, the our, like, my, my golf data or... Um, uh, Medicare data has been leaked. Um, um, the, our counterpart, the the the, other, the, um, the countries which come with a, uh, uh, more intention, might be able to use the data to conduct malicious activities through um, um, what we say uh, phishing or social engineering. Yeah, lure you in and, and try to scam you. Or try to to um, threaten you or threaten you to collaborate with them. Lennon, you've mentioned that a restorative justice approach might be right. Now, normally when I hear about those sort of approaches, they're very much um, in a local community, and you know the victim and the perpetrators are often in the same or adjacent communities, and yeah. it's not too hard to get people in the same room and and talking. What would it look like in this sort of international context? 
Well, we do see um, uh, the, the restorative justice approach uh, that, that has been used in uh, uh, solving uh, the conflict, um, like um, war, war conflict, that sort of thing. So what, what, what they were trying to do is that they tried they, 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 they try to still bring two parties together, but not, in, not like what you just mentioned, yeah. in, in a small room, uh, talk to each other, remote, uh, show remorse, and, and apo- uh, apologize. Mm-hmm. I think um, what we want to see, uh, the use of RJ here, restorative justice here, or what we call small regulation here, is to let um, the victim government or the company know what, what the problems are so that they can fix the problem straight away rather than having this kind of problem exist um, and let other hackers still be able to use this kind of loophole, loophole to um, do other hackings into the, the com- company or even the government again. So that's what I'm, I'm more thinking about using uh, the RJ, letting the hackers to talk to the government, to talk to the victim organizations, at least to let them know what is happening, what the purpose uh, the the hackers uh, are to hack into those companies or uh, um, organizations, and how maybe to tell them how can they do to fix up the problem. Mm. That sounds uh, that makes a lot of sense. That that sort of scale. Yeah. Well, this is more coming from the perspective that since we are not going to uh, back to what we we're saying, we're not we're definitely not going to be able to to take those um, hackers to uh, to the court or uh, to arrest them uh, and put them in jail. This is my, my, might be something, uh, uh, some new approach uh, for the government to think about. And I'm not saying that we would, there will be 100% possibility that this kind of cases will be successful. But um, what we were expecting is that if we have a couple successful cases, in my, in my set of a good example for... Um, the hackers who, mm. who, who who might not really want to work for government in in uh, from the tech side, they might they might be more willing to stand up um, and follow the the good examples um, to to do something really good. Well, yes, you threw out um, a kind of radical idea, which is that we could attract hackers to defect by providing them with support and protection. Um, and incidentally, may I say, fixing a bit of a, you know, it's like the opposite of a brain drain issue. It's like attracting talent to our shores. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting idea. Is there any precedent for that sort of approach anywhere? Sorry? Is there any, um, you know, precedent for uh, encouraging people to defect with skills other than maybe Olympic athletes? Well, um, what was <laughs> yeah, we see we see some uh, uh, defects in in the past uh, in the past few years even in Australia. But they might not be uh, ha- uh, hackers, but we do see uh, um, uh, people working for other countries who defect to Australia and give us some uh, give us some information. And we see like the ones um, that for COVID nineteen uh, situation, we see some doctors. Uh, defect to the U.S. government and, and provide some information. But what we see, um, what RJ has been used, well, it might not be really be RJ. Um, what what the uh, the U.S. government used to use is is that uh, they try to invite those hackers to talk at um, high level um, IT security uh, conferences. So once they come into the country, they will be able to arrest them. This is not really what I, I want. Uh, I, I'm uh, 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 thinking to to that. I'm suggesting government to do. I'm more suggesting government to let 
let the hackers talk to them and and know what the problems are, so that we can solve the problem. Yes. Yes. Wasn't such a radical idea. I I just I got a bit carried away with the the excitement of reading um, such interesting things. Uh, We've been speaking with Dr. Lennon Chang, um, a senior lecturer in criminology at Monash University's uh, School of Social Sciences. And um, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Triple R. Thanks for being with us tonight. Gosh, it's a nice little uh, respite from lockdown for us. Uh, And while we are all experiencing this, I thought um, it was interesting that there's a really cool website that's popped up that can help you choose your next read. It's called whatshouldireadnext.com. And uh, you can just put in a book or author you like and it'll start providing suggestions. So when you're sick of bugging your friends about that sort of thing, because we've all got those particular friends who just read more than we do, Mm. and you're like, okay, which of these are good? I don't want to take too much of a chance. So you're that friend for me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you keep going up the ladder. It's like a multi-level marketing scheme, (laughs) but for books. (laughs) Well, if you are looking to... uh free your life from the clutches of Amazon, there is an alternative to um, Goodreads now um, Excellent. along the same lines of this. It's called The Story Graph and um, you can get to it at thestorygraph.com. Um, they have an app now. It's uh, fairly recently released. It's just been mobile web up until um, well, maybe the past sort of month or two. Um, what you do – oh, you can also export your Goodreads data and import it in there so you don't have to lose all your history. Very nice tip. And you can um, choose books and discover books by mood or by pace or um, pace. by fiction or nonfiction. And cool. Yeah. yeah. I look forward to the responding Twitter account, you know, like – weird story graph lists or something like that. You well, know how we've just, got the weird Spotify yeah, lists? It's, it's fantastic. It's, by, um, it's an app that's been built by a woman of colour in the UK um, and it's a great alternative. I highly recommend you all to, to um, free yourselves that. from Amazon and get on to the story graph. Absolutely. And, and another way you can free yourself from uh, Amazon and from the world in general is by uh, getting involved with Myth yes. virtually. Virtually, but um, you know, it's it's look, it's sad that they can't go ahead with their cinema program, but it does mean that we can all do it from the comfort of our own homes, and we, you know, we and love also it. watch films and watch films. Amazing. <laughs> I'm very sad not to be in the cinema, but I have definitely um, pressed rent on a bunch of um, streaming movies. And Absolutely. how easy is it to use? So easy. It's incredible. Yeah. Do you need a smart TV or anything like, you know, or do you have to do it on your computer? You can, do it, on, like, you can do it on your computer and then you can Chromecast it to your TV, watch it on your laptop or just, you know, plug in your HDMI. Yep. Or you mm. can use your Apple TVs if you've got those you and all sorts of other things that you're using. Excellent. Love to hear that. Well, very sorry for Miff um, having to pivot, but very um, encouraged that they were able to do so, so seamlessly. It's a pretty impressive organisation there. Really? Beautiful. Well, I, I want to say, like, thanks to our guests this evening, two sensational um, academics. We had Sunil Jathani from UTS up in Sydney talking all about his new book, um, the title of which I don't have right in front of me. Someone race. Who has it first? <laughs> quick, quick. It's quite long. These academic uh, oh titles. Oh, man, I'm the worst at this. Oh, okay. The, the politics and <laughs> of self-tracking technology, data, bodies and design. Sorry, Sunil. Beautiful. Emer- Emerald, Emerald Publishing? Insight.com. Yes, yes, beautiful. And also Dr. Lennon Chang. Um, yeah, talking about 
some of the potential remedies for massive issues like cyber hacking um, when it's state-sponsored. Really incredible stuff. Um, I want to say thank you to our, coast, our hosts this evening, Dan, Joe. Um, I'm Vanessa. I don't want to thank me. You, we'll we'll, thank, we'll you. thank you, you Vanessa. See, like you're the only people I'm going to see, you know, in person until this lockdown lifts, yeah. except for a bub- bubble buddy. So this, um, this is about it. Is, the occasional yeah. neighbour, you know, yeah. getting very close to those baristas. Thanks, friends. Yeah, absolutely. Shout outs to those peeps. Thanks to our talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.